ночной шли вдвоем, а фонарики горели. И при виде их на момент притих, и сердца наши замляли. Hello and welcome to the SRB podcast, where in each episode we discuss Eurasian politics, culture, and history. I'm your host, Sean Guillory. Just remember, if you like what you hear on the SRB podcast, consider becoming a monthly sustainer on Patreon or make a one-time donation. This podcast comes cheap, but it's not free to make. You can help support it by going to seansrussiablog.org. Most of our understanding of daily life in Russia comes from Moscow or other metropolitan centers. Life outside the center mostly comes in glimpses, and typically when something unusual occurs to tickle our fancy for the Russian exotic. But what of daily life in the industrial towns that dot the Russian countryside? How do Russians in them understand themselves as working class? How does their experience as working class shape their understanding of their past and present in an increasingly de-industrialized Russia? I turn to Jeremy Morris to talk about his fascinating book, Everyday Post-Socialism, Working Class Communities in the Russian Margins, for some answers. Jeremy Morris is an associate professor in the School of Culture and Society at Aarhus University, where he researches and writes about the informal economy, class, precarity, and post-socialism. His most recent book is Everyday Post-Socialism, Working Class Communities in the Russian Margins, published by Palgrave. Here's Jeremy Morris. So your book is about everyday life in a small industrial town of Izlichna. Where is this town and what's its post-socialist dowry as you describe it in, in your book? And, and why is this study of everyday life important for us to know about uh, in a place like Izlichna? Yeah, it's a, it's a pseudonym. So it's not a real name, but it, obviously it's a real place. Oh, I see. This is why I couldn't find it on a map. No, you can't find it on a map. And actually, the name Izlchina was suggested to me by one of the people in the book as a suitable name. So what is this place? It's a small industrial town, and it's about four hours from Moscow. It's in Kaluga region. And even though it wasn't an intentional choice, it just turned out that this was the field site that I used by accident. It kind of was serendipitous in that it's a kind of any place. or As, as a town, it's... It's not so much representative of small town life, but it's just very average, very middling. So while I don't make any claims that it is representative of, of the wider picture, it kind of works as a, you know, a barometer of, of ordinary everyday life outside the big, you know, the big metropolises beyond Moscow. So it's not poor, it's not, re it's not really, really far away from Moscow, but it's far away enough be beyond that influence of, of the big city. So it kind of worked out by accident as a really good, ordinary, could-be-anywhere place. So, so I use the word dowry a lot, and I take this actually from a, from a Russian scholar who uses it in a slightly different context. But in terms of post-socialist dowry, the reason I use this term is, is to draw attention to how 25 or more years after the collapse of the Soviet Union... A lot of these places, a lot of small towns and even provincial cities are still dependent on the industrial architecture, the industrial infrastructure of the Soviet Union. And that also extends then to the forms of employment, the fact the factories are still standing. You know, we often get this idea that, oh, yeah, well, 1991 came along and oh, we, we entered the market economy. We started having capitalist relations. And oh yeah, we just got rid of all those Soviet factories and replaced them with, well, 
often it's not even explained what they were replaced with. But of course, that's not true, you know. So from the geography literature, I take this term dowry, which originally refers to the, the nuts and bolts infrastructure of industrial and urban spaces. And I flip it a little and say, well, actually, when, by dowry, we're talking about the continuing importance of the urban cityscape and industrial cityscape of the Soviet Union. And then your final question to that is, why is this important? Well, while this is far from the experience that we get when we look at Moscow and St. Petersburg and these big cities, it's actually, it is quite representative of everyday life in the former Soviet Union in that you've got all of these small industrial towns set up since the Second World War where millions and millions of people still live and they're not living the kind of life that we see when we look at Moscow. They're living a significantly more constrained existence. You know, I don't want to talk about them in terms of being, the, uh, you know, the urban poor or underclass or whatever. And it's remarkable how many parallels there have been recently in, in me thinking about this and the reaction that there's been to the US elections and the people that voted for Trump. And sure, sure, those kind of parallels are there. But again, it comes back to what I was saying at the beginning. It, it could be anyway. It's kind of your everyday ordinary town is is this why you don't necessarily name it in terms of like this is the town of x in kaluga province and why you use a pseudonym for it yeah i mean to start with i was thinking oh i've got to i was thinking quite anthropologically oh, i've got to protect the privacy uh, of my informants also i talk a lot about informal economy and i talk a lot about people doing things that are only semi-legal and so there was that. But yeah, at the end of the day, it wasn't really because of those things. It was because I wanted to present a picture of a town that could be could be anywhere. So I didn't want people to obsess really about, about it being a particular province, a particular region, although that does come in later in the book to be really important because of the importance of foreign companies setting up factories nearby. So reading your book, and I think it goes to something that's actually really interesting in the book, and I think probably allowed you to do such a, a detailed ethnography of the residents of this town. You know, reading the book, it's clear that you developed close relationships with your respondents. So why don't you talk about who these people were? How did you meet them? And how did your relations with them shape how you approached your understanding of post-socialist life? Well, I mean, that's probably, that's a really difficult question, but I'll try. Um, so the whole project developed by accident in the I had been working on kind of in a completely different area, but every year I would go to Russia in the summer and stay in a small dacha settlement. And that just happened to be quite close to this town. And so historically, a lot of the workers in this town had these holiday cottages in this village. And Increasingly, since the end of the Soviet Union, they'd been pushed out and the whole place had been gentrified and was being turned into a more of an elite place. But some of them remained and I got to know them over many years, in fact, since the late 90s. And so that, that was, if you like, my cheat in that I had developed a lot of close rapport and close personal relations with some of them before, many years before I even thought about doing any kind of ethnographic project. So I'm not really like you know, your typical anthropologist in that they would go in perhaps and have to develop right from the from the ground up these relations. I had, if you like, in, in the parlance of anthropology, I had existing gatekeepers who I developed trust with. 
One of them was a factory owner himself who happened to have a, a, a house just a couple of doors away from me. And then, in fact, over the road from him, which again turned out to be really serendipitous, was one of his own workers. And it's quite difficult to imagine, you know, this kind of holiday village where you have a guy that owns a factory that turns over, you know, millions of dollars worth of production a year. And then he has his holiday house opposite one of his own factory foreman. But, but, but believe me, that's, that's, that's the way it was. So, so I suddenly, when I started thinking a bit more anthropologically, and, and, and that was, that, that was a direction that I wanted to take my research in. This project just presented itself to me as almost a ready made in that I could, on the one hand, perhaps do the more traditional for area studies thing, which is go and talk to these elites, these business elites, these people that have seen these massive changes from the top. This guy had been the chief engineer of this factory in the Soviet period and then had taken it over in the post-Soviet period. At the same time, I could triangulate what he was saying with actually what his workers thought of, of the factory that he owned in which they worked. And, and I just thought, this, this is a project that, that's perfect. I don't necessarily have to do much more than that. I mean, as it is, as it went on, they were just the beginning of, of the group of informants that I built, um, largely through going from one person to another, which is what they call snowballing in, um, in anthropology. You know, you, you get the trust of one person, you gain the trust of one person, you build your rapport with them, and then they introduce you to another person and kind of vouch for you. So while the whole project started off by accident through this long-term commitment that I had to going to Russia and, and going to this, this rural place, it allowed, that allowed me and, and built into me being able to visit this much more urban, traditional, kind of Soviet-looking environment of these factories. Again, it's ironic that you have this beautiful countryside and then next to that you have this kind of industrial micro-city built in the middle of nowhere. But again, that actually is quite typical. Uh, of the Soviet experience of industrialization, especially after the Second World War, these kind of micro cities, most of them are relatively small, apart from, you know, there's only a few big mono towns. Most of them are more like the size of my town, which is, you know, tens of thousands rather than hundreds of thousands. And again, that became part an important part of the book, looking at the way ordinary people actually experience living in these mono cities. And by mono cities, we should immediately explain towns or cities that, are, that were dominated by a single employer in the Soviet period and then which faced these almost insurmountable uh, obstacles to transition in the contemporary period because their whole, you know, raison d'etre was just churning out one thing for usually the military-industrial complex of the Soviet Union. How do they transition from that? And although that's not central to the book, it's certainly something that um, is touched on and, and, and kind of informs the way that I talk to these people, because obviously most of them grew up in this place. You know, most of them have been born there. I think it's also important to point out for these mono towns in the Soviet Union that it's more than they're providing employment for the population; they're embedded within the social infrastructure of the town. So they supply utilities, heat, and other institutions. And there's been quite a lot of scholarship about that, which is great and which I drew on. But obviously, I wanted to get more into the the actual experience that, that ordinary people have in that kind of space. But yeah, you're really right to draw attention to that, the way that uh, it's kind of a functioning organism, the town. The industrial em enterprises are connected to the grid 
the grid is cut off from the rest of the country. You know, it will have its own heating plant. It may even have it. Yeah, it will have its own heating plant, if not electricity supplies. And yeah, it's not just employment. It's it's a whole panoply of social facilities, kindergartens, schools, even a hospital that are self-contained. Because, I mean, this, this particular town was what the local residents call a, a post office box in that because it was came under the remit of the defense ministry, it wasn't a closed town, but it was somewhat cut off from the rest of the world, so to speak. I'm always curious about this. How did these people react to you as someone who's looking to study their life? I mean, how did they, how did they understand what you were doing and how did they respond to, to it? Remarkably well, I think is the answer in terms of how they were inc- incredibly generous with their time, with, in terms of revealing really important and personal and interesting things and committing to what was a really long term relationship with me as a researcher and as a person. You know, I lived in two different families, the first family for a relatively short while and the second family for a lot longer. And Sure, there were there were um, episodes where I encountered, I think, what most researchers, regardless of what they're doing, would encounter in Russia, which is suspicion, maybe mistrust, and, and some incredulity. But that was really the exception rather than the rule. The fact that I can remember the episodes where that happened actually shows how unusual it was. There were you know a handful of there was only a handful of times where people would not answer a question or not want to even talk to me. So I was able to build up a core of you know a dozen or so really good close informants that I could talk to continually, and uh, a wider group of people that I would interact with on a less frequent basis. So again, while it's kind of a, a problem with ethnography in that by by virtue of the method, it's a small n kind of science, you know. It, and this is why this is why we continually cautiously talk about generalizability. You know, you can't generalize from this study to the wider experience of kind of industrial towns. And yet I was amazed at how many people I was able to talk to and actually really gain some insight from. So the relations were excellent and they remain excellent. And the commitment that I have to my informants to continue to share with them what I am writing about them, to what degree do we have a responsibility to the people that we are studying. And of course, I feel an immense sense of responsibility. And although some of the things that I say in the book, I don't think they they will like or the ones that have seen it do like. Just this summer, I was I was in Russia and I was talking to some of the people that are in the book and, and talking to them about the way that they are depicted. And one of the Key informants is, is a person that I, I talk to a lot. I have talked to a lot since the book and, and he's been, he's been absolutely brilliant in terms of saying to me, well, I think you were right here. I don't agree with you there and actually engaging quite intellectually with what I did. So again, it's, that's actually part of the book as well, saying, focusing on, on giving people who, people a voice about whom we often say, well, these are working class people. Therefore, somehow, you know, they, they wouldn't be able to engage with scholarly study of themselves, which is nonsense. So it's kind of getting over this patronizing and condescending attitude that, that we as scholars inevitably have often towards people outside our class bubble. 
You write that your book is, is not a description of deindustrialization or factory life, nor is it a story of dispossession, pauperization, and trauma after the end of the Soviet Union. Rather, though, it, it's about how people make their life habitable. Talk about this concept of, of habitability and its centrality to your understanding of, of daily life in this town. So habitability emerged as this key concept. And it's not it's not perfect, but it's a it's a term that I decided to use partly because of what one one key informant said to me right at the beginning of the research. In fact, he he was he was a little bit distrustful. This is a guy that I'd known for a long time, um, and actually he was one of the very few exceptions where he kind of maintained this not suspicion, but I don't know what the best word would be skepticism about what I was trying to do. You know what? You know what on earth could I, a middle-class British person, have to say? You know what on earth could I say about about his life? And, and I was sitting with him one day, and slightly indignantly, he answered a question that I'd put to him. I said, "You know, I, I think I was. This was right at the beginning of the research that I was doing, and I probably asked him it, asked him a question in a way that seemed perhaps like even possibly insulting to him. And I probably said something like, "You know, how, how do you live in a place like this?" or what does it mean for you to to work in this factory? Rather, you know, really stupid questions. <laughs> and and in in some respects, you know, where anthropologists are trained to ask stupid questions because it, it usually gets a good provocative re- response. On the other hand, I was probably quite naive going into the field thinking, already thinking that I had some ideas. And so he responds and he says, what, what, what on earth do you mean? You know, what, what are you talking about? What do I think of my life? I just, you know, my life is my life. I just live like anybody else. And then he used he used this term about the town. This is my environment. The word environment has this kind of uh, connotation of uh, habitation. And so I picked up on that and talked to him a bit more about it. I talked to other people. And what really emerged over time was this idea that people feel very very comfortable about their locality, about where you know where they grew up. They don't want to leave. You know, this place may have incredible problems associated with it you know unemployment pollution crime whatever but it's this kind of local loyalty and normalization of risk normalization of insecurity that this term habitability uh, i i try and use this term to to express now on the one hand again i think it's slightly problematic because again it maybe makes too much of an academic deal of of something that should just be taken as read. Well, of course, these people think of themselves as normal people, just like anybody else was. You know, it's, again, it's, it's, it gets to this question of, of how academia tends to other people who are from different class backgrounds. And so it's not, it's not a perfect term, but I did want to stress how we need to kind of get away from looking at places that, that we might think, that middle class might people think, might might think that that Russians that live in big cities might think are completely you know awful places to live in you know how awful and and again I, I have to say that it's it, there is a tendency in Russian scholarship and of course uh, in Russia generally to really divide Moscow and the big cities and the rest everything else is awful how how on earth could one live in the sticks you know in the back of beyond like these places so really that was also a, a kind of motivation for me to try and give these people a bit of a, a voice for responding to that stereotype. And it is a stereotype. 
And I have to say, you know, often when I talk about this to Russians in particular, they come back and say, well, how on earth could you go and do this research? How on earth could you go and live in these places? And, you know, frankly, that's quite insulting to, 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 to my informants. And, you know, I come from a nice, comfortable, middle-class British background. And I have absolutely no problem saying that this is a perfectly habitable place. And, you know, that's also something that I wanted to talk about in the book, uh, just in a, on a really, really basic level. Right, right. Uh, yeah, because I read the, the term as an attempt to move away from the general exoticism uh, that's placed on people and their normal daily life and, and a, a bit of a fetishism of them as either somehow some sort of subject of resistance on the one hand or a subject of oppression. And, and, and here, what you, what you, the, the picture you're painting is, well, you know, to, to put it quite banal, you know, these people have to get up in the morning, go to work and tend to their families, just like many other people. And these are the, 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 the way they encounter those movements throughout their life. Yeah. And also at the back of my mind, and again, at the beginning of the project were a couple of phrases that I really wanted to not counter, but get over and kind of go beyond. One was coping. And, and I even used this as a, as a, as a title in, in an article, Beyond Coping. Because especially in the 90s, 1990s, for very good reason, there's lots and lots of scholarship on the terrible economic and social conditions of ordinary Russians and ordinary people throughout, uh, you know, the former Eastern Bloc. And, and so, I kind of got it into my head that there's this dominant coping literature. And, that, and that's for very good reason, as I've said. But 25 years after the end of the Soviet Union, I wanted to really be able to get into the more normalized mindset of ordinary people. Because you, know, you can't live your life, despite all of the problems, you can't live your life in these places thinking, well, I'm just coping, or I'm just surviving. You know, obviously, people don't think in this economistic mindset that inevitably we project on them when we see that they have so much less than perhaps other people do. Yeah. So again, part of this project was to go beyond this idea that these people are at a subsistence level. And in some respects, of course, they are. But one of the things I wanted to bring out was the richness of, of daily life, of the everyday. The other thing was from the geography literature that a colleague drew my attention to, which is how even in some of the best geography literature on these kind of spaces, these deindustrializing or you know, deprived urban spaces. There's this continuous talk of the inability of these people to, to perform household reproduction. And this while this is again perfectly adequate in its own way to talk in terms of talking about these people, you know, household reproduction just means can your children look forward or adopt strategies in order to enable them to live the same life that, that their parents lived, you know, to buy a house, to get a good job, to have children and to look after them. So household reproduction is a perfectly respectable scholarly way of looking at a deprivation and economic inequality. But again, it just seemed to me to hide rather than reveal the actual lives that these people live. So yeah, a lot of the people that I'm studying struggle with the issue of household reproduction. But I don't think anywhere... Uh, well, perhaps I do use that term, but I try and use it critically. So we say that, that household reproduction cannot take place. In other words, people are getting a lot poorer. People don't have the same opportunities that their parents have. But what does that actually mean in terms of how people 
think about themselves, think about their their everyday lives, think about the future, and think about the past, think about their parents' lives. And that's, again, how the, the kind of generational issues start to come into the book. Yeah, yeah. I want to talk about the issue of time, because, you know, as you, as you also said about the 1990s and the literature of coping, as you call it, and trying to reflect something about that that's somewhat missing in our understanding, because, you know, the issue of time does have a presence in your book, and how people situate themselves in it, and how they understand their lives through it. So how do uh, residents of, of this town understand the past and the present? And, uh, you know, there are a couple of moments where you speak about their feeling of being out of time or in between. How does this function in their understanding of their environment? Okay, well, time features really in two major ways. The first way that time features is this feeling of lost time. And by that, we're mainly referring to people who are perhaps older than 50 years old now, and who have some memory of being children or young adults in the Soviet Union. And this is a very familiar um, idea, the idea that there's a break at the end of the Soviet period and all the positive things, the positive achievements as they see it, of the Soviet Union are lost forever. So there's this loss and trauma associated with the past. But obviously I wanted to do better justice to it than, than just reproduce this rather uncritical notion of of, of nostalgia. So by really talking at length to some of these older people, one of the things that I was able to do, or rather that they were able to express, was not a political nostalgia and not a cultural nostalgia for the Soviet Union. You know, these are two very well-worn furrows. You know, there's, there's all this work on, on how much the, the, the cultural production the literature and the cinema and so on is, of the Soviet period is, is, is loved and, and cherished and that kind of nostalgia. And then, of course, there's a line that people take that you know, people, are, people are nostalgic for the political order and the geopolitical pride that people have in the Soviet Union as the, as the other superpower. So, again, I wanted to kind of dig out what was more important than those two things. I mean, obviously, those two, those two things exist, but actually what was more important to the older people and again, this is a function of, of their kind of class positioning, is the social guarantees that they were able to access and rely on in the late Soviet period. And so I was able to really tease out from these older people how their sense of trauma and disappointment and anger and loss in the present is very significantly determined, not by politics, not by anything else like that, but by these tangible social guarantees that they felt they had achieved and then which were taken away. So what we mean by that is often bundled in a term called the social wage. Um, and particularly in a, in a monotown, an ex-monotown, an industrial town like Islochino, we're talking again about this social infrastructure that came along with the factory and actually made their life relatively comfortable for, for industrial workers. We're talking about places in kindergartens close to their homes, very good schooling facilities, relatively good cultural facilities, a local hospital, you know, all these kind of things like canteens and the in-kind benefits that the factory offered, you know, not, not wage benefits, but tangible benefits that meant that the, being an industrial worker was actually not that bad, even, even if the conditions were bad, you know. Right. I want to. I want to come in here because I, I, this is the other thing that I found. I found really interesting and and also appreciated that you 
you know, we often hear in more popular renditions of these attitudes as paternalism. But you actually turn that around in this idea of the social wage to make it sound like, no, it's not paternalism. It's actually we deserve this because we're laborers. It's it's part of our compensation for our labor. And I think that this is a really important way to thing to consider because it's not the you know, Russian laborer expecting, you know, some sort of father figure, however that's conjured as the political leader or the factory, whether to give them things by virtue of their existence. It's no, the laborer says we deserve these things by virtue of our labor. So I, I think this is really important. Yeah. And you can see that coming about for historical reasons in that the ideology of the Soviet Union actually had this, this effect that workers did come to think of themselves as as builders of socialism, and therefore having given so much for the building of the system, being entitled, having a sense of entitlement. On the other hand, it's also, that's kind of been reinforced over the last generation through this sense of betrayal, in that they are the biggest, they become then the biggest economic and social losers of the transition. Um, but I was going to also talk about then the out-of-timeness. And so that crosses generations in that a lot of the younger people obviously have been socialized within these kind of working class families where perhaps for generations that they've seen these very significant increases in living standards and then that's taken away they become young adults perhaps in the early 90s late 80s early 90s and then everything that they've kind of been socialized into thinking is, is normal increasing living standards a permanent job by their parents is gone and there is nothing to replace it. And so even even though they may have no personal memory of the Soviet period, this kind of infects their whole worldview of the present and can often have a very negative effect on the way that they view the world. And so this particularly this core uh, informant, this key informant that I have, Sasha, I, I open the book with him just almost stumbling through life, not really knowing. And, and, and I do that for a for very good reason, in that he he just often seemed not to really be able to deal with anything. He'd left school, he'd gone to the army, he'd come back, and then the Soviet Union had recently collapsed. And, and he, it's almost like as a personality linked to being uh, a working-class person, he'd never overcome this. Um, that's, I suppose that's the only way I can put it. And, and, and he's very important because he goes from factory to factory to factory and is, is never satisfied with the pay and he's never satisfied with, with the conditions. And in the end, he just ends up in the informal economy um, as a, largely as a taxi driver and as a day labourer. Uh, and so he's almost the emblem, really, of this book in that you have a whole generation of people who are now in their 40s or early 50s whose whole coming of age is associated with this traumatic event. Now, speaking of this, this the identity and, and, you know, people having a coming in the Soviet period as factory workers, having a working class identity, and then, of course, passing this down to some extent to their children. But also, you know, some of the things that you mentioned, just little things in your text, like the presence of these people, mostly men, of course, wearing these factory overall, the, you know, the importance of things just like symbols like dress. And, and your study is about this idea of working class identity and personhood. So what does it mean to be working class? And, and how has 
it changed in in post-Soviet times. Okay, so yeah, I use this term. I use personhood rather than self, and then usually rather than identity. So the idea of being a working class person is bound up with so many different things. It's bound up with being part of a, a social group, a social collectivity, whether real or imagined. And so identity has this very strong association with, with the individual self. And so I try to avoid using that word and, and, and use the word personhood more. Personhood, being a working class person, at least in this town, means uh, expecting, both expecting and gaining recognition from others on a daily basis. And that comes down to uh, as banal things uh, as as we've just mentioned, the fact that you are wearing blue overalls as a kind of uniform of the worker, and the fact that the town is relatively compressed social space and geographical space. It's, everybody has to cross the same square in the morning or in the evening, going to and from their shifts. Inevitably, you're getting this. You get these encounters on a daily basis with all kinds of different people who are at different distances from you socially and personally, and yet most of whom are also people that have in the past or still are working in factories. And so your whole almost autobiographical self, and I will use that term here, is bound up then with these encounters with other people who are all also wearing these blue or grey overalls so you know you're you're walking across the square in the morning to get your works bus to the factory, and you encounter this guy that you worked with twenty years ago in the Soviet period in the main factory, and of course that will evoke certain recollections or associations in your in your personhood in your in yourself, and then you get on the bus with the people that you work with now, and some of them are much younger, perhaps some of them, and so that again makes you think of certain things. You go to the factory. And perhaps the foreman is the same guy that you worked with 20 years ago as well. Yet the bosses, perhaps, are completely different, have been brought in from Moscow. Maybe they bought the place. Maybe they're foreigners. So this idea of personhood as the way identity is formed in these kind of class associations with others continually, and it's continually performed and reinforced throughout the working day and then also after work as well, is just something that I found really, really important. So what does it mean to be working class? Well, in some respects, it means the same as it always has done. Because as I've said, despite this image that we have of these factories disappearing, many of the factories in many of the workshops, we shouldn't really call them factories, there are only a couple of major sized outfits. Most of these workshops continue to exist. You know, that they've they've been there for they've been there since the end of the Soviet Union and somehow they continue to survive as going concerns. And so there's a lot of continuity in the class experience, which, of course, then is actually quite fundamental to a class identity. You need this long term association with work, with being a worker to build that kind of class, uh, subjective class consciousness. Um, and then there's also the question of generation, which is why I keep talking about older people and younger people and the interactions. You know, there's in history, in historical studies, there's, there's a lot that's been discussed in terms of worker aristocracies. And I don't really draw on that work in my book, but it is relevant. You know, the idea that over multiple generations, people develop a certain niche in a particular area of industrial work, and then 
their children are expected to go on and do that work. And, and actually, you do get some kind of social mobility through this. That's also important. And again, that also then expresses itself in that kind of class identity. And again, also in the, 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 the relatively banal and predictable ways that one would expect, a sense of pride in practical skill um, and all these other kind of values that, that historically are, are associated with working class identity of the world over, but often, often are not given any kind of treatment in scholarly literature. What about the gender dimensions of this this working class personhood? Uh, how is it shaped concepts of or or expressions of masculinity, femininity, the relationships between men and women, men and men, women and women, etc.? Um, how, how does this work out in a gendered way? There's obviously a lot in the book about the traditional patriarchal working class man and the kind of stereotypical associations that one inevitably has with that. But that's a very limited picture a limit and limiting picture one of the things that i i wanted to get at was the sense of loss that many men feel which is an experience very common to deindustrializing environments and how many men struggle then to find a, a role within the family let alone a kind of psychological crutch after after the devaluation of everything that they, they kind of stood for, everything that they expected uh, from life, where the factory is kind of downgraded, where they see this decades-long reduction in their living standards as breadwinners. So, so men stop becoming breadwinners and, and have to rely on, often have to rely on women much more. And women obviously then feel this burden in an even greater way than they felt it during the Soviet period when they were also expected to carry this double burden. So that's a kind of relatively straightforward picture. This struggle, the, the struggle that, ma- that men have in refashioning masculinity after their relative loss um, of status, economic, social status. So that's one picture, and that, that's a relatively predictable picture. The other picture, obviously, is how do women cope with the reduction in value in working class men's life? And and again, that's also been talked about a lot. What I suppose is, is, is unusual about what I've been able to do in the book is really follow a group of women as they make very, very difficult choices about their own trajectories uh, in terms of family and work. So rather unusually, there's this portrait of a number of young women who are faced with staying in the town and seeing themselves quite limited in terms of what what they can actually achieve because of the rather conservative traditional gender views that people have on on, on women's work on what is women's work some of them choose to leave so again migration comes into comes into play go to moscow uh, some of them choose to stay and there's really two two cases that that stand out so one is one is a much older woman who has really become part of the labor aristocracy and again she's interesting and she's quite emblematic of a, of a whole group of women in the town in that she decides to stay on in the factory even though the factory is kind of disintegrating around her and and many of many of the men in her of her generation are not able to cope with this and kind of give up so she's almost like the the kind of matriarch uh, kind of almost like a working class matriarch 
but who actually is a worker. She's actually a, a forewoman in a factory. She features quite significantly in some of the encounters in the book in that she sees it as her responsibility to maintain the factory, not as a going concern, but just as a, as a, as a space of working class life, as a community, which on the one hand is a, is a kind of reinforcement of her feminine role model, kind of traditional feminine role model to be a mother. But at the same time, it's kind of peculiarly masculine in that she's a worker, she's in this factory, she's, she's in charge of all of these men. And she has to be, uh, in inverted commas, you know, a tough foreman in making sure they actually do do their work so that the factory survives. So that's, that's, one, that's one of the important stories uh, from women that we have in this book. Another one is the transition or the attempted transition from blue-collar background to a white-collar social mobility for women. Obviously, that's something that we see again and again in, in all kinds of working-class communities. Obviously, some people see their only option as to try and kind of break out from, from what they see as, especially women see as, as a constricting environment for their personal growth or whatever. And so the other story that, that, that's told in this book is of this woman who tries to break out and actually take on a much more individualistic, career-driven future that we would associate much more with feminism in the West and women going out and having careers and stuff like that. And, and what, what makes it really interesting is that it's taking place in this very traditional working class environment. And, and so she's very successful in one sense in that she is able to do this and become a manager and get a very good salary. And she's able to also have a family. But at the same time, she is also constrained by the environment around her, which sees this as a kind of betrayal and sees this as, as unacceptable an unacceptable thing for a woman to do still. So that, that, that kind of generation is, is still very, very important, unfortunately. Right. Is, is the betrayal, is it rooted in a sexism or is it rooted in a class betrayal, if you can disentangle those two? I'm not sure you can disentangle them. I actually think it's less to do with class and more to do with just the dominance of gender roles, traditional gender roles in Russia. So I think it's to do with the environment. It's partly to do with the environment, the, the, the working class environment of the, of the town in that if you are an upwardly mobile woman, you are very visible in that role in that the vast majority of the women, by default, uh, whether or not they have a good education or not, they go into the caring roles, the caring jobs in kindergartens and the hospital or right at the bottom of the, of the, of the ladder, so to speak, they just become shop assistants in the service economy, which is an absolutely terrible role for anybody to inhabit in Russia because it's so incredibly badly paid. So one of the things that the that this the story of this woman highlights is how in this very blue-collar environment, closed environment, you are inevitably on display as as a woman when you are trying to move from being in a position where you are in a working class family to to making this social transition, this socially mobile transition. So inevitably, she sacrifices a, a lot to get to this position. Your mention of the figure of Sasha, that he is bouncing around from factory to factory, but then at some point he, he enters into the formal, informal economy. So, and, and you spend a lot of time speaking about the informal economy in the book. So what, what role does the informal economy play in this town? 
as anybody who knows about Russia will know, it's dominated by the informal economy. So how can we describe this? So many, many people may have a wage-paying job, and still today, some of their wages may be paid to them in a brown envelope, which means it doesn't get taxed, which means it's not registered anywhere. That's the informal economy. What else is the informal economy? The informal economy is when you hail a cab in Russia, but of course you're not hailing a cab, you're just hailing a private car, and you're paying cash to that person. And that may actually be that person's livelihood as an informal cab driver. And that's very, very important in this space in particular. But also things like you know, any kind of uh, what in British English we would call trades work, you know, plumbing, carpentry, somebody coming to fix your refrigerator, all of these things are in the informal economy. The, you know, they're unregistered. They do not appear in any bookkeeping anywhere. They're not taxed. They're not declared. And as you can imagine, in a place where there's quite significant underemployment, where these factories are reducing in size every year and the employment opportunities are shrinking over time, or at least changing significantly, a lot of people fall back for a stopgap or even permanently on these informal, these illegal forms of income. And the classic example in Russia, as in many other post-socialist spaces, is taxi driving. And again, we should stress that this does not mean that, you know, you go out and get a, I don't know what they call them in the US, they call them medallions, don't they? You pay for a medallion from the license of sorts. A license, yeah, from the city. and, And that costs a lot of money. And then you have, you become part of a monopoly of service providers in a yellow cab or whatever. It's nothing like that. It's normally people just with a, an ordinary car and perhaps the minimum in terms of a sign saying taxi on it. And they're paying a group of dispatchers, usually women in this case, they're paying them a fee to be given passengers who are, who are telephoning a number. And all of this takes place, or, or almost all of it takes place, within the informal economy. And for most of my informants, my, my male informants, at some point in time, whether it had been before they'd got a permanent job or after they or after they quit a job or between jobs, almost all of them had driven a taxi in this way at some time, at some period. So kind of taxi driving becomes an, an emblem of, of, of this big informal economy. And so, as you can see, it's, it's one way that ordinary Russians survive. And again, this doesn't really, it's not really necessarily a class issue. You know, we see this in big cities, we see this among all different kinds of people, social groups falling back on on these kind of ways of generating income. So, on the one hand, it shows us that there is this opportunity. I mean, we we wouldn't really want to call it an opportunity, but this safety net, the informal economy is a safety net in these kind of places. At the same time, it's a trap. And at the same time, it's obviously exploited by the political elites because it's so prevalent and ubiquitous that it means that a state like Russia which is a very wealthy state, can get away with more and more cuts to social uh, provision, social protection. And so it, it's, it's a double-edged sword. It's, it's, it's both something that my informants actively pursued as a way out of situations where they were really unhappy with formal paid factory work, but then it also becomes a trap in that they become stuck in this 
situation where they are completely outside the formal economy. And then, of course, it becomes increasingly difficult to get back in, especially when these transnational corporations like Volkswagen and Samsung come along and start building factories in this area, which offer not great, but relatively okay wages in comparison with the local Russian factories. So the informal economy is this really difficult monster, really. It's, you know, some measures of, of the Russian economy, of course, you can't actually measure it, still show that, that unrecorded economic activity is running perhaps close to 50% of, of all economic activity. Of course, you can't record it, really. So it's a best guess. Right. And this is what makes it so difficult to measure the, you know, the, the economy on a statistical level, because the statistics just don't, don't actually capture a major portion of what's actually going on. Now, the collapse of the Soviet system necessitated a transformation of the self or the personhood uh, to suit a capitalist economy and society. How do working class people of this town address the challenge of becoming flexible subjects in this increasingly neoliberal atmosphere of, of, of precarity, but also lack of social safety? And I guess the informal economy is one way. What are some of the other ways? This is this choice, and I do see it as a choice, is something that divides a lot of the people in the book. So there are some people, men and women, that they don't so much see this as an opportunity, but they see it as a necessity to adapt themselves to become ultra flexible in terms of, of their skills, in terms of their employment choices, in terms of what they're willing to put up with. And they say goodbye to any memory, any desire about having the kind of uh, certainties that their parents' generation had. And so we see this in, in two examples. We see this in the example of, 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 the, of the woman that I talked about previously who relentlessly pursues this journey from a blue-collar background to this white-collar managerial uh, position, which she achieves, but at significant personal cost. And then another example is a male informant who I call Piotr, who, again, makes a lot of personal sacrifices to make himself as an attractive a proposition as possible to this new German factory. He retrains at his own cost. He'd formerly been a um, technician in a poultry factory, and he'd been fixing machines there that, that feed the birds. And then he retrains to be able to fix automated welding machines in this car factory. And again, he... He articulates very uh, consciously this change in himself and this change in his generation over the previous generation, that he has had to become ultra-flexible. He's had to remake himself. He's had to almost squeeze the past out of him. And so that's one set of people who, who really conform to this, this model that we, that we see in the, the literature on, on the neoliberal self. And, and that's something, you, again, that you would, you would expect in any group. On the other hand, what, what I find personally more interesting and what, and what also emerges in the book is, and again, I, hate, I hesitate to call it resistance, but people who perhaps we could just call, call them people who just don't buy this and who do everything they possibly can not to have to make these kind of compromises. And we see that in people that just stick in the same old, old-fashioned Russian factories and who are increasingly increasingly see their wages eroded by inflation and have to again re resort to the informal economy 
And then we also see people that, as I said previously, almost embrace the precaritization of the informal economy, taxi driving, because even though it does mean they are not going to get much money, they are going to be right at the bottom of the pile. It, it is better than this compromise. It is better than slaving their guts out or in these new, very high-intensity production scapes like Volkswagen, where you know, physically working in a car factory, you know, ironically, people associate car factories with high-tech, and they are high-tech, but they're actually also very, very physical environments, very high-intensity labor environments. And this is certainly borne out by the experience of people that I know who work in, in these Russian factories for these foreign car firms. Uh, but also that's something that extends to work that's been done on high-tech car factories all over the all over the world. It's really, really hard work. But it also involves not only endless self-exploitation, physical self-exploitation, but also mental, a lot of mental self-exploitation. And so some people are just not prepared to do this. And again, they articulate very clearly, again, not their resistance, but their their choice to not do this. And finally, most of our understanding of Russian life in general and life under Putin specifically is through the, the window of the city, you know, especially Moscow. I mean, we, we started out by, by speaking about this. How does daily life in a town like this, what does it say about, if anything, about Putinism as a, a social existence? Okay, well, I hesitate to say that this portrait of everyday life necessarily says anything about Putinism. And, and, and I very consciously tried not to, to pursue that line in the book. But of course, it, 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 it's open to interpretation. I actually was asked to write a recent piece about this for current history. And inevitably, I, I speculated in a number of ways about what working class life, what industrial, small industrial towns tell us about Putin's Russia. Well, the obvious first answer is, it shows us that the ruling elites in Russia have a huge disconnect with ordinary people and possibly a conscious disconnect in that they just really don't care about the large, not majority, but this large minority, I suppose you would call it, of people that live in industrial settings. And of course that's that's because of because they don't have to speak they don't have to think of these people. They don't have to think about them. Because as long as the oil revenues are able to maintain the social part of the budget, although obviously it's inadequate, then I suppose quite cynically the Russian elites think they can they can control, they can they can stave, they can head off any kind of resistance, any kind of protest from this quarter. Although that's proven to be not entirely accurate, in that even in the last year there have been increasing number of labour related disputes that have spilled over. And of course, this is despite the way that um, the Russian legislation has made going on strike almost uh, illegal. So, so the first thing is that that the elites don't really care. They have no interest. They have no notion really of uh, what these places are like, who lives in them. They don't really care. And consequently, they have no policy. They have no industrial policy to address these places. I, I try and look at it the other way around, though, of in terms of what what does the disinterest, the, not disinterest, the, the complete lack of, what, what does the complete lack of interest of Russian elites towards ordinary Russians and not just working class Russians, how does that play in terms of 
how these people then react. Well, actually, what it shows is how resilient ordinary Russians are forced to be, given the continuing erosion in living standards, particularly since you know, 2009, 2010. And so one of the takeaways that I have is that, especially regarding uh, sanctions against Russia and, and these erosions in, in living standards, unfortunately, Russians are able to absorb uh, uh, almost an infinite amount of punishment from their own government. Kind of gives the lie to people that think that sanction, economic sanctions can be effective in making people's lives so uncomfortable that they are willing to, you know, protest or, 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 or whatever. You know, it, right. it's, it's just remarkable how much you can take away from people who have already had so much taken away from them over time and they will still not do anything because they just will find other ways of, of coping with that. So we come back again, ironically, even though I wanted to show how rich the life of ordinary people could be beyond uh, an idea of them just coping, all of the geopolitical things that have happened in the last seven years have actually brought me back to looking at how people have to just survive and how effectively they can do that when their own government does everything possible to make their lives really difficult. That was Jeremy Morris, an associate professor in the School of Culture and Society at Aarhus University, where he researches and writes about the informal economy, class, precarity, and post-socialism. His most recent book is Everyday Post-Socialism, Working Class Communities in the Russian Margins, published by Palgrave. I'm your host, Sean Guillory, and this is the SRB Podcast. If you enjoy this podcast and want to help support it, please take a moment to share it on Facebook and Twitter. Like my Facebook page, Sean's Russia Blog. Write a review or recommend the show to your friends. The SRB Podcast comes cheap, but it's not free to make. You can help support it by making a donation at seansrussiablog.org. Thanks to everyone who's been contributing. You can find past shows on iTunes, Mixcloud, and SoundCloud, or you can download them directly from seansrussiablog.org as well. Until next time, bye. Every job I ever used to kick you out the dark Carry your opportunity to learn and never know